Welcome to Investor Talk Radio, hosted by Kurt Davis. During the show, Kurt will share tips and strategies as well as guest interviews on how you can become a successful real estate investor. Kurt Davis was a former chef for 11 years until one day had the opportunity to take a leap of faith, left cooking, and became a full-time real estate investor. Kurt has been building his personal portfolio of rental property and at the same time has helped over 500 investors around the globe purchase cash-flowing rental properties. He is a licensed realtor who has achieved multi-million dollar club status, and he is also very active in the local real estate investment club. And now, here is your host, Kurt Davis. Hello, and welcome back to another edition of Investor Talk Radio. I'm your host and the founder, Kurt Davis, coming at you today. Now, I'm super excited about my guest today. Uh, I would probably have to say this is my uh, all-time favorite guest that I've had on the show so far, uh, the one and only Robert Field. Robert, welcome to the show. Kurt, thank you so much for having me today. It's so fantastic to be here on your podcast. You know I'm a big fan. Of course, a big fan of things that you, you do, and it's great to be here in your office. I have to say that the technical setup here is very enviable. Um, my little laptop that's five years old that I work off of in my office is nothing like this. So Well, you have, you have something to strive for, goals, right? <laughs> yeah. So congratulations, and thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. You know, this, is, this, this interview is actually uh, very long overdue. I've been doing podcasting for a while, maybe not on the most consistent level, but uh, nevertheless, I'm excited to have you just uh, because of our history that we've had together. Um, so for the listeners out there, Robert Feel, I've got a, I've got a few things here that I want to say about you. And you can tell me if I'm uh, incorrect on any of these, okay? Okay. So you're obviously a full-time real estate investor. You've, I'm, I'm assuming you've sold well over 1,000 to 1,200 homes in the past 13-plus years, correct? Um, we, think, we think it's close to 2,000 um, because I, I've done a lot of consulting work. Where, like, for example, I sold a hundred houses for a crew I consulted for over in Singapore. Sure. And those aren't part of the public record, so to speak, in my personal name. But I mean, I orchestrated that, so we think, um, we think it's close to two thousand. It's, it's I've been pretty active. I've tried to stay active. I sure, guess. sure. Um, you are a soon-to-be-published author. You can speak Spanish pretty fluently. Uh, you also know sign language. You're a black belt in martial arts and you are currently training in judo. You're a classically trained musician uh, with a, a focus on guitar. Uh, you, you hold multiple degrees. Uh, you're a former radio show host uh, that was specifically geared towards real, real estate investing called Pieces of the Puzzle, Journeys in Creative Real Estate Investing on uh, several uh, local uh, radio show channels here. You're an animal lover, and if I'm not correct, you are a barbecue cooking champion. That is correct, right? That's right. Yes, we've uh, we've won a couple grand championships, and uh, and I get I guess if we're being technical, I'm actually training in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which okay. is a judo judo basis. But uh, I've been doing that for about five years, and uh, yeah, I guess you could just call me a jack of all trades and a master of zero trades. And that's not even all of them. I mean, that was just the ones that I thought of putting down. <laughs> well, you know, I appreciate it. I. Uh, I guess I was uh, fortunate when I was a kid. I, I had uh, my heroes were MacGyver and Stingray. Uh, I don't know if you remember that old. I don't remember show Stingray, from but the I love MacGyver. Yeah, and uh, you know I always thought that was so cool. They just seemed to know everything, so it kind of steered me in a direction of 
wanting to uh, be a, I guess for lack of a better word, a multidisciplinarian. So it's been fun. It's been fun to engage in the study of martial arts and, you know, people that train in martial arts and, you know, music background find there can be a lot in common in those disciplines. They lend themselves to each other. So I used to be in karate, taekwondo specifically. Well, you were an excellent wrestler in high school, were you not? Not too bad. Not too bad. So, and you know, you should keep thinking about doing that. You know, others yeah. still the, thinking. The wrestlers that are <laughs> at our uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu school are—they do extremely well. So, I'm sure you'd you would smash it. But <laughs> good skill. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. It's really an honor, and thanks for putting a little bio together. Absolutely. Well, listen, we're going to kind of get right into it here because I'm sure the 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 few listeners that we have right now are probably bored to death. So, uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Maybe uh, where you're from, family, things like that. Oh uh, yeah, I was born in Rochester, Rochester, New York. I uh, I was one of the kids in the '70s whose dad left the house when I was three years old, um, so I didn't really have a dad growing up. And um, you know, because of that, I had to learn you know a lot of things on my own. So, and my mom worked all the time, uh, full time. Well, she retired from the DEA, but you know, I never got a chance to see my mom a lot because she was working three jobs and. You know, I started working when I was pretty young up in Rochester. I have a sister up there. And, you know, that kind of family work ethic that, that my mom gave me of just working all the time has always stayed with me. I've been really, really fortunate that, uh, you know, it, it takes hard work to get where you need to be. So I was born in Rochester, um, graduated from an all-boys school there, a Jesuit high school that was was and still is run by priests. Um and it gave me a good footing. I ended up going in uh, triple majoring at Syracuse uh, University up there. And when I finished that, I was a school teacher for a little bit. So, you know, just kind of doing what everybody tells you to do. Go to school and, you know, after you finish school, get a good job and get good grades. And that that was my background. Now, you were going to school up in New York. How did you end up in Memphis? What brought you here? Well, it's an interesting story. I... Uh, you know, one of my majors in at Syracuse was uh, music education, and my specialization was guitar. So I had had a little bit of success um, with with playing guitar, and when I was in teaching in the Utica School District, I was coaching volleyball up there. The way that it works in New York State is if you don't get your master's degree within five years of starting your teaching job, they invalidate your teacher's license. You have to go to school all over again for it. It's a pretty onerous requirement and you know you have to basically start your masters within five years even if you're teaching full-time so uh at the time i was dating a girl who was a professor at a college in rochester called rochester institute of technology and one of my goals had always been to become fluent in sign language so i worked uh on applying and i ended up getting a full scholarship to the national technical institute of the deaf there where i got my master's degree in deaf education but the classes were, in the evening, they were designed for career teachers. Even though I had resigned my position in Utica, which was about two hours from Rochester, to go and attend this two-year program, which was very intensive. It was in every every summer, they were on trimesters. And you basically went four trimesters a year. Uh, you went fall, winter, spring, and then summer trimester for eight consecutive trimesters. And because the classes were at night, it allowed me to work an overnight job. Um, at a local children's center where I was, uh, all the kids were asleep, so I was really able to hone my guitar skills. And I was given a lot of concerts up there. I'd gotten some choral pieces published. And um, I ended up getting a full scholarship offer from the University of Memphis 
to come down and to teach guitar and to get my doctorate down here. So um, I, after I finished, I sold everything I had. I brought my German Shepherd and uh, my guitars and a very, very few possessions down to Memphis. And in fact, I was thinking about this yesterday. The day that I pulled into Memphis, I was in a, a tiny U-Haul. I was dragging uh, my Jeep behind me, which had no air conditioning. And it was 106 degrees the day I pulled in. Mm. And my uh, the apartment that I rented was down on uh, the railroad tracks in Orange Mound. Man. You know, because I didn't know anything about Memphis. And sure. I had, you know, been here one time and trying to find something for, you know, $500 rent. Where up in New York, $500 would get you far at the time. But down here, $500 does not get you very far. So, uh I remember I was, you know, unloading the truck. It had one window unit air conditioner. And I turned it on, and it was, like, really not cooling. I'm sitting in this stifling hot box, pouring, pouring sweat. And I thought to myself, what have I gotten into? I mean, <laughs> you know, talking about wondering if you really were making a bad decision. Because I had given up everything. I had sold my house. Um, I had an investment property up there that uh, I was working on selling also. Um and I'd sold all my possessions. So, but it was a, it was a good move. Memphis has changed my life. I've been here almost 20 years. So you roll into Memphis, and now you're a student at the University of Memphis, mm-hmm. uh, working on your guitar. Uh, now, you were also a school teacher here in the, in the Shelby County Schools, correct? Uh, yeah, I was in the Memphis City Schools uh, for about five years. I was tenured. And the way that worked was uh, my guitar teacher and I had a little bit of a falling out, which was... Very frustrating for me. She had told me that uh, basically uh, it was in my second year. I'd done very well in my first year. In my second year, um, I needed. I basically needed a job, and I was inter- I was going to interviews, and I was late to class one day because I had finished up an, an interview over it with the uh, youth villages actually. Because I my background when I worked at that children's center is in crisis, um, which is a very unique niche. And they were looking for a crisis supervisor. So, anyways, I interviewed out there, and she was like really mad. She's like, "You're not, you can't work full time in this program. Um, you know, I'll throw you out of the program." And it was kind of a decision of financial solvency or taking out more loans. You know, of which I had, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in loans already at the time, practically. Mm-hmm. So, so I le- I resigned from the uh, doctoral program there, and. Uh, I immediately got a job, was offered a job uh, with Memphis City Schools, which is now Shelby County. And I taught for five years there. I taught music. Uh, I got my tenure there. And, uh, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a great teaching job. So you're teaching Memphis City School System. How does real estate come into the picture? What, what was kind of the first, I don't know if introduction is the correct thing, but, like, where did real estate start coming into the picture? What happened? You know, that's that's a great question, and I, I think my journey's been a little bit different than most people's. You know, I always think about, as I as I think in retrospect, about kind of what I call my inner compass. You know, I've always been able to kind of go in the right direction, be in the right place at the right time, it seems like. And in this particular case, you know, I was originally, a lot of people get into real estate investing, they have a job, and they think, well, I need to buy some rental property. Why don't I think about diversifying out of the equities market and buying some rental property? But for me, as I told you, you know, I grew up with, um, you know, no, no dad around. And money was a five-letter word that was, you know, now really spoken in our house. So, you know, even though I worked since the age of seven, I was always broke. And, you know, I mean, I was very deeply in debt when I, 
you know, started working for Memphis City Schools. I mean, my student loan debt was very high from Syracuse. And then on top of that, you know, I, I had taken a, some loans uh, up at NTID, so I had a very significant burden. And what happened was I always knew in my heart that I needed to get into investment property, but the way that I did it was I thought the first thing I was going to do was to buy a property where it was basically a duplex. I could live on one side, and then I could rent the other side, and it would pay the mortgage. And I did that. I, I bought that, and I was living there. Is that Prescott Street? It was Prescott Street, yeah. And I still own that house today. It's one of my mm-hmm. best. It's, believe it or not, it's almost paid off. I've got about two years left on it. Um, but, you know, it was funny. I, and then I was working. I was like, okay, now I'm going to go buy another duplex, you know, for some cash flow. And this, and, this is all while you're teaching. This is while I'm teaching. And I always thought to myself, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach for 30 years, get my pension, and then over the 30 years, I'm going to buy 10 rental properties. And they're all going to be duplexes. And basically, you know, if I can take home six out, well, I guess at the time my, my pay was $3,600 a month. You know, so assuming I can take home like $4,000 a month from my teaching pension, which is dreaming. You're not going to do that. You get like 35% mm-hmm. of what your final take-home pay is. But at the time, you know, I didn't have, have the details worked out. I was like, and I, I own, uh, you know, 10 rental properties, you know, and each one gives me, you know, and each one is paid off and, you know, they might bring in $1,000 a month total. Then I'll have like, you know, ten or $15,000 coming in. And that, that dream was great until I bought my uh, second investment property here and I'm at the closing. And the lender... Uh, in front of the attorney, who I didn't know, and my realtor, starts talking about how bad my credit is, how high my debt-to-income ratios are. And, I mean, it, you want to talk about wanting to crawl under a rock. And he's like, I was able to get this done, but don't come apply for any more loans because you're, you're not going to be able to get, get, get lent to. So it was like really – so I was in a quandary. And I started to go to the local RIA group. This was before the 2008 collapse. It was back in 2006, and the RIA group was huge. Um, what here is the five five hundred some five hundred people, people showing up every at week, the Cordova every month. Builders Association. I mean, it was huge. And to tell you how naive I was, and I'm embarrassed to share this with you, but I actually talk about this in my book. You know, I walked into that that room. I was by myself. You know, I had put on like a shirt and tie. You know, because I was like, oh, these are all wealthy investors. And I walk in the room, I see 500 people. And this is what I thought to myself. I thought, oh, my God, these people are all millionaires. <laughs> you know what I mean? And if you, as you as you get into real estate, uh, you start to realize, like, there's very few actual accredited investors that are debt-free and just liquid with cash. Yeah. And, you know, so many people want to get into real estate, but they can't. They don't have what it takes or they're broke or any of a variety of obstacles that we all encounter, but I just remember thinking, every one of these people is so rich. And I went there, and, you know, I, I learned some things. Um, but what really changed my life was the local RIA group here had a weekend seminar with a guy named Scott Reister. And Scott Reister came, and he did an 8 to 5 on Saturday, and I had, didn't have the money for the workshop. I was like 750 bucks, and put it on a credit card, which my credit cards were almost maxed out, mm. right? And uh, I went there, and basically this was his his whole shtick was, he's like, I went broke owning rental properties. There was a day where I came across a great deal, and it was something I really wanted to buy. But, you know, he's like, I own 20 or 30 homes, and 
you know, my lending lines were all maxed and my credit cards were all maxed. And I, I ended up, you know, I was really frustrated and disappointed. And I drove by a construction site where some guys were working. And I swung in to see if there was any contractors that might be looking for side work. And what I found was I was at the, at the right place at the right time because the owner of the new build, the guy who was building the subdivision, was there. And we talked briefly about real estate. And he said to me, if you find any deals that you don't want, please bring them to me. I'm always looking for deals. And Scott had said to this guy, well, I just found such and such deal right around the corner here. And the guy said, well, let me go see it. And he took him to see it. And the guy said to him, um, well, listen, how, how much do you want to make? And he's like, I need to make $10,000. And the guy said, yeah, I'll give you a $10,000 assignment fee. I can close this Friday. And Scott went from being like reasonably illiquid, even though he had cash flow, to hey, here's $10,000 in my pocket, and a light bulb goes on. And that light bulb went on for me, too. It was a situation where I thought to myself, you know, this this is what I need to do. I need to think about buying and selling wholesale houses, and that can help me pay debt, become liquid, eliminate my credit cards, give me some security, and I can all do that in a spare part-time basis. So, so real quick, just to catch up here, you're still teaching in the Memphis City Schools full-time, you have just purchased a few buy and hold properties for yourself, correct? Just just one. Just, just my okay, primary. Just one. Then I had yeah. a rental apartment, in, and then I bought a duplex. Okay. And then I was shut down. And now you attended the local RIA, and now you're starting to consider essentially wholesaling, correct? Well, yeah. I mean, I took the wholesaling course on Saturday. Um, on Monday, I went and I bought a house. I found a house for ten thousand dollars here at seven thirty five Kent Street. Um, which is in Orange Mound, which, you know, coincidentally was right near where I lived. And uh, I believe it or not, I sold it the, the same week to a colleague of mine who worked at one of the schools that I taught for 15000 And uh, when I went to pick up a check, I, I netted about 3800 instead of 5000 because I had no idea what I was doing. The attorney charged me some exorbitant $1,000 closing fee. Um, but, you know, I was making 3600 a month as a teacher. And in with like in an investment of three or four hours, I had made thirty eight hundred, and I was like, "Wow, I just picked up a month of pay, you know." So let me ask you this then: from the time that this happened, this particular moment, how long did it take until you left teaching? Well, the way that I left teaching is, um, I started to wholesale houses, and I was. Um, I was maybe selling two homes a month, you know, for like five or six months, little deals. Um, I did my, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife of almost 15 years was living in an apartment over on Carnes Avenue. And I ended up uh, buying that one and I sold it and made $15,000, which was like, I mean, a big financial windfall for me at the time. And when I had finished that deal, I had the confidence to take a local investor here to lunch. Um, whom I had sold several houses to, and he was a he was a big leader at the local Rio. And he said something to me. We went to lunch, and I was basically like, I, I think, you know, I'm a teacher by training, but I feel like I could be really good at real estate. I feel like I have maybe have a gift for it. And this guy, I had brought a couple houses and, 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 and sold it to him, and, you know, I talked with him periodically. He maybe bought four or five houses from me. And he, I guess he had been watching me. We had talked, and, and he said something to me. And I'll never forget this. We were at Jason's Deli. He said, Robert, he said, I've known a lot of people in real estate, but I've never met somebody who has 
and he paused for a second. He said, it. And I was like, I don't know what you mean. He goes, just it. You have a gift to just, in this, you can really succeed and excel in this business. And he offered me a full-time job. He offered me a full-time job renting houses. And the caveat was, um, it was half of my pay, half of my teaching pay, meaning I would have to take a 50% pay cut and there was no benefits. And <laughs> I, so for I, someone who was kind of struggling, uh, just a little bit anyway, that was, you probably had to think about that a little bit. Well, I, I tell you, you know, now that I look back, I think about what a ballsy decision it was to be faced with. Um, and I said to him, I said, well, you know, the, the, the salary that you're proposing means that I'm going to be cutting my pay by 50% and I'll have to pay my own insurance out of that 50% pay. And he said, one, he said something to me, he goes, yeah, but what if I paid you $2,000 um, per house and you find me at least five deals a month? He goes, then all of a sudden, you know, you're not making $1,800 a month, you're making 12000 And he was a man of his word. I started to find houses for him. He paid me $2,000 for every deal. I hustled and rented houses. And that was kind of the, the the real foundation. I was surrounded at that time by a couple investors that I really respected, that I trusted, um, that, that really kind of knew what they were doing. Everybody had their own specialty. And at the time, we were uh, we were doing some good things in Memphis. Uh, this is long before there was, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20 wholesale companies in Memphis, which is well, a, it, a very competitive environment now. now. now, now it's funny because my, my next question I was going to ask you that kind of correlates with what you just said is, is you know, uh, you know, what was the real estate was was the real estate climate different when you started compared to now, and if and if it was different, how do you see it different? And that's kind of where you're at. Oh yeah, I mean, it was like the Wild West back then. It was. You know, pre-2008 collapse, people could, you know, get, I mean, people were getting loans. We could sell houses. I could put a house under contract that is, I'm not even, I don't even have on title, sell it to um, another investor, and they could get a loan um, without us even being on title and then pull cash out and, like, close in three weeks. And that was something you you would never be able to do today with, like, a Fannie Mae lending program. Um, people were pulling out forty, fifty thousand dollars from these ultra high appraisals. You were never having appraisal issues. You were never having, you know, inspection issues. It was, it was, you know, I, at the at the time I think about what at the time what we were all doing in the in the world of real estate, and it was like, kind of creating the environment today where people saw that there was an opportunity. Now, with that being said, there's been a lot of guys that go out of business, that declare bankruptcy, but. You know, there's always room for the best. You know, I look at you and what you do, Kurt, and, you know, your company here, and you've done very, very well. And that's a function of, I think, you having just a strong foundation, a really strong foundation. Is that your phone there? Well, it's not, it's not my phone. Is it your phone? I don't know. I have no idea. Let's find out. That's how uh, that's how we do it here on the Kurt Davis podcast. I don't even know what that is, to tell you the truth. Random, random sounds. <laughs> you know, it's like you try to do they, everything you can to eliminate... Something like this happening. I don't even know where that's coming from. I mean, if I could stop it, I would, but I can't. Well, and you got the train rolling through here, mm-hmm. which is a very classic Memphis. Just, Memphis just deal. What we do. So, yeah. So you know, it was it was it was an interesting climate. It was an interesting environment. That I'll change. Do, do you want to just maybe yeah, pause, pause the podcast here? All right, we're back. I apologize for the pause there, but uh, Robert, continue with where you were at. Well. So what I was saying was, basically, in a nutshell, 
you know, well, the, the times were different back then. You know, I think today you can – I think the, the competition in, in, the, in local Memphis has really kind of driven the quality up of, of investment homes and, you know, the, the importance of having good quality, you know, property management in place is really, really critical. But those are things back then that, you know, they were kind of secondary, like, you know, property management. We knew it was important, but it was like – you know, just hard to keep it as tight as it is today. Whereas, you know, today, if you don't have good property management, you're trying to sell houses for clients globally. It's just very, very difficult to do. How many investment properties do you own? Do you even know? Um, right now, I have about 50 units. Um, part of that it comprises a mobile home park, uh, which I'm selling. But, um, you know, I'd say it's about 33 buildings. Um, and I'm very fortunate that uh, I started to put those on extremely aggressive mortgages. We're going to talk about that. Okay. okay. We're going to talk yeah. about that. So about 33 buildings today. Um, you know, I, I own 30 properties, single-family homes. And, you know, sometimes people will ask me, is that enough? Or how, how do you know if that's enough? Do you see yourself buying any more? And I don't really know what the answer is because I, I don't want to – necessarily say oh you know i'm done buying properties but at the same time if you know i went and looked at a house this morning before uh, i came here to meet you that i'm interested in is a buy and hold keeper for myself so you know if a good deal comes along and i like it i'll, I'll probably buy it i mean yeah yeah i mean what I, people ask me how many houses do i want to own and originally my plan was a hundred paid off homes and that sounds that sounds pretty aggressive i think to the average listener out there you know, it'd be one thing to buy, for example, you, 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 you buy 30 homes, right? I have 33 buildings, and we have loans on those. And, you know, you, people use 30-year loans, and, you know, that seems like a lifetime, or you use 15 loans. But the way that I had originally kind of envisioned it was, a, for lack of a better word, a snowball effect. If I can, um, you know, amortize my homes and start to pay them off before I'm, you know, in my 60s, at some point... You know, when I have total free and unencumbered cash flow and I'm totally debt free, um, which I'm not far from now. And I'm talking about real estate debt. You know, I don't have any unsecured debt anymore, um, which, you know, we can definitely talk about. You know, my, my gut feeling was, OK, well, let's say I'm making $30,000 a month in, in net cash flow. And that's after my tax and insurance burden is accounted for on the homes. Well, you know, realistically, every couple months. I might be able to buy another house for cash. So then you buy four houses a year, but then you're also kind of like exponentially multiplying your cash flow so that, you know, what's 30,000 take home pay and, you know, year, let's call it year one of paid off homes becomes 35,000 in year two. It becomes 43,000 in year three. And then, you know, all of a sudden you've got a cascade effect where, you know, you can think about getting to a hundred houses and you're doing it in a way where you're paying cash and, you're not really dealing with lenders anymore. That's kind of what I call a critical mass. That's always been a goal of mine. I don't know if 100 properties is where I need to be, but I think it's, you know, with you, if you see a house today, what's the difference between 30 homes and 31? There's not. Yeah, I mean, when I was when I was just starting out in real estate, you know, and I was getting a lecture from the guy who was like, you'll never get a loan again. Don't ever apply. You know, I thought to myself, this, and this was my thinking, I was like, how do people ever buy and own three homes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like it's such a, a big question for somebody who is only buying their primary residence a few times in their life. It's like, okay, well, you, people, some people own a vacation home, right? I mean, that's fine. But you think about, you know, I had heard urban legends 
of like there's a, there's guys in town who own a hundred homes. There's guys in town who own two hundred fifty. I heard of a guy who owns five hundred homes, and it's like I thought that was an urban myth until I actually met the man. Yeah, you know, and worked for him. So I think it's more about mindset than you know a number of units. Yeah, I mean, but it's... thirty houses, like in your case, is it's hard to it's hard to do thirty houses unless you're either doing it yourself and really kind of managing the managers, which I think is what you do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, or you're in real estate full time, or you've got a really tight management company. You know, we've got a client who bought twenty six homes from us. They're very happy, um, and we manage a lot of their houses. And um, we have several other companies in town that we've referred them to that manage some of their houses. And it's, you know, you've got to really manage the managers and run a tight ship. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like you and I, we have the benefit of being here locally. So whether we're self-managing or whether we're managing the management company, we do have a slight advantage over, you know, the typical out-of-state investor who doesn't have the benefit that we do. Yeah, it's hard to do it far away. You know, if you've got a good team, you can do it far away. Um, you know, I've got a home in New York. I've got, I guess, technically two two properties in upstate New York in the Adirondacks, and you know, I've got a guy up there who, uh, you know, I, for, I all I can say is he doesn't return phone calls. He's on what we call Adirondack time, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, you might text him and he'll text you back six weeks later, but he drives by my house, you know, almost every day, and if there's a problem, he takes care of it. So, and he'll let me know, you know, in arrears that he, oh, hey, this pipe broke. Hey, here's this. So you really got to have a good team. Sure, sure. Now, you know, just a, just a little bit ago, you were talking about once you joined up with that, you left teaching to work for that company. That was many years ago. That was well over 12, 13. That was, that was about, that yeah. was back in 2000, I want to say six. Yeah. Is what that was, 13 years ago. Obviously, a lot of stuff has happened between now and then. Mm-hmm. Um you obviously own your own business now, correct? I do. I own I own my own my own company, which is which has been great. I actually own uh, two companies. They're both the brokerages. One is focused on investment property, and one's focused on on management. Now let's talk about the the turnkey side of your business. What's the name of your company? Okay, it's called uh, Discount Property Warehouse. What do you guys do? Well, we offer turnkey property in the vein, the same vein that everybody kind of else does, I guess. But the difference is we're, we're small, and I guess the critical difference is that what we offer is we try to exceed what is known as the 1% rule. Um, and the 1% rule is something that a lot of there's you know different companies in town and nationally who do the same thing. And what they do is they'll, you know, let's say a, a home sells for 100000 Traditionally, investors are looking for, you know, a minimum of 1% of that purchase point in terms of monthly rent. So... A hundred thousand dollar house, one percent of that is a thousand. They would expect their gross rent to be a thousand dollars a month. Correct. Now there's there's a there's a company in town that makes you sign dis- disclaimers and um, affidavits that you know your home will not appraise and you, you know, buy the hundred thousand dollar home for one hundred twenty, and that's one way of doing business. But you know we would try to sell that house kind of what we call above the one percent rule, which means you know the price you know our price might be you know eighty nine nine or something. So we try to focus on bringing value through price and then through the support offerings that we have. But we're small. You know, our goal is to sell, you know, we try to do about five homes a month. And uh, we've got a staff of uh, really six now full-time employees. So we're, we're, we're small. We're not big time like like you guys over here by Memphis now. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say too big time, but 
Um, I want to talk about a program that you created. I want to say back in is 2009, correct? It, um, yeah, you're talking about short-term retirement. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Back in 2009, which when we uh, started a trade market. Okay, so now I remember. I remember this. I remember back in 2009, you were trying to explain to a handful of us in a room over at the old office where we used to be. Uh, this very creative, almost like a financial model. I, I remember that day actually, where where we was it where I was on the on the whiteboard. Yeah, we're in the back, we're in the back office. It was you, another gentleman who does private lending here in town. Mm-hmm. I think there was like three or four of us back there, and and you know I'm not a financial wizard, but I was trying to follow this, and for me it was. And it, it's silly now because I completely understand it. Right, right. But at the time, it was just way over my head because in my mind, people bought property really one of two ways. They either paid all cash or they did conventional you know, lender financing, 20 25% down, 30-year loans. Uh, if they wanted to be really aggressive, they'd put on a 15-year loan. But you kind of created this program, which is called the Short-Term Retirement Program, and... I know this was something that you made available, you put together, uh, got a bunch of private lenders on board to offer this program out. But more importantly, what I think people need to know is that not only did you just create this program, but this is actually what you used for yourself, correct? Yes, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I have uh, many paid off homes now as a result of this program. And, you know, I don't know if you remember, we were sitting there one day and uh, there was a guy that you and I were working for consulting, really nice guy, but he's kind of temperamental and moody. And we we're trying to figure out how to buy, how to sell more houses. And the issue being, you know, different lenders, you know, Fannie Mae requirements, you know, sometimes allow you to have, depending on the lender, four houses or six houses or 10 houses. Mm-hmm. And then there's reserve requirements, which comes in. Well, and before you get too far ahead, I'll tell you where where I saw this program provide its largest impact, at least for us in the early stages, was when, I want to say 2010, when all the foreigners started coming over here to purchase, you know, investors from Singapore, New Zealand, Australia, there were no uh, lender programs. Oh, yeah, there was no, no yeah, financing available. There was no financing in place, but the short-term retirement program. Why don't you tell everybody kind of what it is and how it works? Well, what, what struck me is, is really interesting at the time is that, um, you know, auto loans are all on five-year notes. Everybody goes to the car dealer and you get a you get a car payment. It's always five years. And then you go and get a um, home loan and it's 30 years. So if I go and I buy a car that's $50,000, um, and of course, you know, your average car payment is um, about $212 per uh per $10,000 finance, right? Assuming a 60-month note. Um, you know, a $50,000 purchase of a vehicle on a five-year note with, you know, no money down is going to be about $1,050 a month, 1060 maybe, um, depending on your interest rate. And that's interesting. Everybody's driving around, you know, with new vehicles, and they've got a $1,000 car note. And then it's like, hey, man, um, I'm going to go to the lender, and I'm going to buy a $50,000 house. And the guy's like, oh, well, we can't have a $1,000 house payment. You can't afford that. You're going to have to go ahead and we're going to have to jack this down to 30 years. And that way it's your quote-unquote most affordable payment. And the problem with that is multifold. I started to look at the amortization tables, and I really meditated on it. And, you know, what I realized, and, and this I is the subject of my up, upcoming book is about 500 pages, 
um, that I wrote about this. It took me seven years to write, and it's it's coming out this year. How and, many, it, how, and it's how, also called the Short-Term Retirement Program, which is interesting. Are there any chapters in there about me? Uh, yes, I, I do actually <laughs> speak speak about you and uh, many other many other repeat offenders. If Can't you wait. Um, but you know what I found was people are basically, you know, they're kept they're kept in debt. They're in financial servitude because they're given the false illusion that they need a thirty year loan to buy a house. And from a primary residence standpoint, it plays out something like this: Here's a guy who works for a local company. Let's call it FedEx in Memphis. He brings home, let's just say, fifty thousand a year, um, and that guy is going to give away half of his paycheck to taxes. Now, people, if this was the radio show, I would say at this point in the radio show, anyone can call in. Here's our number. I'd like to hear anybody who will disagree that if you're working and you're a W two employee, you're giving away half your check to taxes, and people will call and be like, well, my tax bracket is 28%. It's not 50%, Robert. And it's like, well, that's not actually true. Your federal tax is uh, 28%, but then you pay something called FICA, right? And people don't think about that. They're like, oh, yeah, FICA. And what that, what is that? That is Social Security tax, Correct. which is about a 15% tax rate. So now your 28% tax bracket goes to 43%. And anyways, let's just say, just trust me on this, I'm right. People give away about half their check to taxes. So then with the remaining pay, their lender takes up to 40% and applies that on a 30-year loan to figure out that the guy who makes 50 grand can make one, can can afford a $150,000 house. So he goes and he buys a $165,000 house, right? Cuz you know, he falls in love with a house in a new division and you know, the lender bumps it up and his ratios are tight. And what does that guy bought? He's bought himself 30 years of payments worth 21 years is all interest and he's just throwing it away and what 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 that what i figured out from that is like that's the reason why so many people in america 76 percent according to forbes magazine um are living paycheck to paycheck is there a better way so it went back to the auto loans well why do auto lenders require you to pay off um, automobiles in five years because they depreciate so quickly exactly because the the depreciation um and because of what we call lending risk Homes tend to appreciate, even though the IRS allows you to depreciate, um, you know, investment property, right? But homes traditionally, historically, have gone up in value. Correct. In many cases, most cases, but cars, unless they're collector's items, they don't go up in value. So they, they drive off the lot; they lose value. And what that does is that introduces risk for the lenders because if a lender were to give a 15-year note on a vehicle, like an Escalade, for example. You know, around year six, the Escalade's value has dropped to um, something negligible. And you see this also with RVs, okay, which I, we, I've learned a lot about RVs also, um, lose value tremendously. So the lenders really have to mitigate their risk, and they force you to use aggressive amortizations. And I thought to myself, well, why can't we buy houses and use five-year loans? Why can't we buy houses and use seven-year loans? Um and so basically what I did was I went to a private lender. I ran this idea by him. I said, what if people put down a significant down payment, which they're going to do anyway, right, with a conventional loan? They're going to put down 20%, 25%, 30%, depending. I said, what if they just give that to you as, as collateral and you take a first position lien and instead of giving them a 30-year note, why don't we just give them a five-year note or a seven-year note or let them select the amortization through a flexible algorithm that I created? The lender, the lender loved the idea. Um, the program was born. 
And I started to use that program very aggressively. And now that I'm on the tail end of the journey of it where I paid off, most of my homes are paid off now um, that I own. And I'm very, very fortunate to be in that position. You know, what I realize is you don't you don't have to wait until you're 60 or 70 years old to have a, a, a life of financial freedom. It's very, very doable. But, you know, the lenders, everything that we're told about finance is wrong. They tell you to go to school and get good grades. Well, the truth of the matter is nobody cares about your grades, and I'm going to prove it right now. What was the name of your elementary school that you went to in second grade, Kurt? Franklin Elementary. Okay, and what, what city and state was that in? Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Okay, and what grades did you get in second grade? Do you remember? Couldn't tell you. Okay, what about fifth grade? Do you remember? Uh, okay, what, what about eighth grade? Do you remember? Well, if we call Franklin Elementary or Franklin Middle, is that what yeah. you went? Okay, is that your middle school? Oh, the middle school was uh, Whittier. Weir? Whittier. 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 Kind of oh. like Whittier, California, but it was Whittier okay. Middle School. So if we call Whittier Middle School today, and we're like, I'm sorry, I need a, a transcript request for Kurt Davis, they're going to be like, I'm sorry, we don't have those records. Like, no one cares, dude. <laughs> well, yeah, no, nobody cares. If I, it's funny because I have a copy of my high school transcripts, and uh, let's just say that during my high school years, I was just trying to get by. Yeah, well, like, this is, this is my point, though. Nobody cares, <laughs> right? Like, like you, go, don't. you go to high school. Hey man, you you know you got a guy who's valedictorian in your class. You know he's gonna go to Yale. Nobody cares. The truth of the matter is, you know I'm looking on your wall here at your termination letter from Holiday Inn Sioux Falls. Isn't that fantastic? And I'm gonna guess that uh, your general manager Tom Bosch. Did you know that guy? Yeah, real nice guy. Okay, when Tom Bosch hired you, your grades didn't come up in the interview, right? He's nope. like, do you have a reliable working vehicle? Can you work eight to five? Are you gonna be able to be on time? Things like that. Yeah. Do you understand? It's like it's like no one cares, and it's all these things. Go, go get a safe, secure job. That's another fallacy. There is no A, there is no secure job. B, um, you know, they, they say get benefits and so forth. And the truth of the matter is, is that for, for so many people today, the benefits that were once enjoyed are going away. Most For most companies, there is no pension anymore. There's some pensions. But in my book, I write about this, like almost every single teaching pension in the and police pension in the uh, in the United States in municipalities they're all underfunded at some point all there has to be a financial correction or you're gonna end up seeing what happened in Detroit which is um, they declared bankruptcy because they can't fund the pensions and what does that mean that means people that have 20 25 years in the system their their pensions went away or drastically changed and what about the people who are getting their pensions and had retired and put 30 years in well they took massive benefit uh, reductions and what is this what does this mean it means that every everything we're given and told is really the opposite of what we should be doing people say well buy a 30-year house that's a great investment the truth of the matter is it's not a great investment at all because the first 21 years of it you throw away all of your um all of your payments to interest when i do seminars i ask this financial question all the time and everybody answers it the same way i say let's say timmy the teacher buys a house for $100,000, and his payment's $1,000 a month. Do you guys understand me? And everybody's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm like, let's pay his, say his payment's $1,000 a month. Timmy makes 12 payments. How much has he paid? And everybody's like raising their hand. They're like, oh, 12000 And I'm like, okay, yes, great. You can all do this basic math. Very good. So at the end of the year, okay, Timmy asks his lender for his mortgage payoff. All right? He paid 100000 and he's paid $12,000 into his mortgage what's his balance everybody's raising their hand 
88,000. It's going to be and more it's like, it's gonna be more like 98,500. It's, like, it's like it's a good thing you came to the seminar because he still owes basically 100,000. Yeah. And and people many people are floored by this ultra basic you know lack of understanding and when you start to understand that the bank's interest algorithms are designed to let the bank win. They don't care about the lender. They don't care they don't care about the borrower. They don't care about the fact that that you have to carry insurance on the house. You have to ask her to pay taxes on the house. All the bank wants is to get its money. And the best part about it for the bank is that when you go and get a mortgage, the bank doesn't really take money out of out of itself and give it to you. It basically creates an electronic debit. It gives it to you, and then you start paying them back with real money post-tax. Uh, the, the world of fractional reserve banking is very, very powerful. And it's this is why so many banks... Um, they're engaged in corruption. They're engaged in things like um, what's known as forerunning and other other tr- you know deceptive trading tactics that are designed to usurp investors and 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 create wealth on Wall Street. While the average American is sitting here just crushed in taxes. And I talk about this in my book. But when you apply it to investment property, you never really you never really own anything until it's paid off in full. And if you and and you don't. If you're carrying high interest bearing debt, unsecured debt, you you have to figure out a way to get rid of it or else you're going to perpetuate the cycle of paying interest on take home pay and fixed income pay and you're always going to be living to paycheck to paycheck. And that's that's what the book is about. That's what the short-term retirement program is about. You know and it's interesting because I remember I remember when this program rolled out at the time, it was like, oh, it just, you know, five years seems like such a long time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, why would somebody do this? You know, because, you know, part of the reality with the program, I recall, is, is the, the monthly cash flow was not as good, obviously, as if it was a 30-year loan. But the program wasn't designed for cash flow, was it? It's not designed for cash flow. The program from the beginning and its inception is this. We Let's take a guy who's 25 years old. He's working. He's got... Uh, He's got a good job, you know, he's going to climb his corporate ladder. He wants to stay, you know, he doesn't want to be in real estate full time. He doesn't have an entrepreneurial bent. You know, for that guy, age 30, age 35, age 40 and age 45 are all going to come anyway. And most of our clients at Discount Property Warehouse are in their 50s and 60s. And what are they doing? They're coming to us, they're saying, "Well, you know, my my IRA, my 401k, you know, has a really really done that well and and that, that comes back to another math question that i ask in the seminars that i give let's say a guy has uh you know a hundred thousand dollars in his stock portfolio and the stock stock market goes down and he loses half of his portfolio right so his hundred thousand dollar portfolio after he loses half what's it worth now not much okay 50. right right because it's 50 percent a year yeah but now let's say okay that um the following year okay the stock market goes back up, and um, you know he uh, has basically uh, it, it goes back up, and his portfolio recovers a hundred percent. Well, not not a hundred percent of what he lost, but I'm trying to think about the mathematics as I do it in the seminar, and I might not be able to recall it here exactly because I, I didn't prepare this. But basically, it goes if the stock market goes down by percentage X, and it results in him lo- losing half of his portfolio, mm-hmm. and then the next year it goes back up by the same exact percentage X. Um, what what does the guy have in his portfolio? And every everyone thinks he recovers 100. percent But the truth of the matter is, he doesn't. He only recovers like like 25,000 of his 50,000. He doesn't get his 100,000 back because he's lost so much aggressive principal. And that that belies something in the equities market, which is very difficult to deal with. Which is once you have losses, 
you have less capital to deal with, and then you're always paying commissions. So, you know, everybody, and, and this is something else that we talk about in the book, it's really important. Most Americans are conditioned that, what would you say most Americans, um, where is their life savings, Curtis? 401k. Okay, I, I would agree, 401k. So my mom's a perfect example. She's got a lot of money in 401k, can't do anything with it until she's essentially old. Right, but this I, is, yeah. right. So in your mom's a perfect example, and my mom, my mom is the same way. Um, but this is the question that people don't ask themselves. Does it strike you as strange that everybody's life savings nest egg is placed in the hands of somebody that they've never met? It sounds like the scariest thing ever. It's why, it's that, why that I don't never have 401k. Met. I mean, your mom doesn't know where her 401k, she doesn't know what the asset allocation is. She doesn't know who's making the, the diversification. And the best part, here's the best part. You know, these these companies like, you know, a large company like Fidelity, and I'm not I'm not saying Fidelity is doing this, but I'm saying that, you know, these corporations like that do this, what I'm about to explain. They will, you know, have blended portfolios that return 4% to a, a client, a good year. What's a good year? 4%, 6%, et cetera. Well, the truth of the matter is these people are making way more than 6%. But it's not going back to these investors, right? It's going, it's going as parachute packages, multimillion-dollar compensation bonuses to these high-end, you know, managers that are dividing, you know, the asset allocation and other people that own these companies, and very little of it gets back to the investor. It's the same thing with, um, you know, these teaching pensions. You know, they've they've audited these teaching pensions and and all these municipal pensions. And everybody assumes, oh well, these these companies are returning eight percent, and they're they're not they they don't return anything like that when audited. It's like two percent, three percent. Well, how is it that the the greatest? I mean, many of these teaching pensions, you're talking about billions, billions of dollars. Okay, you're telling me that they go and they pick the best company for it with the best track record. And these companies can't take X billions of dollars and return more than a paltry 3%. And, and, and then when you take into account dollar inflation, which is the Federal Reserve stated policy, which is they want to keep about 1.5%, 2% of inflation. So what that means is if you take 100000 and you go put it in a bank CD and they give you a whopping 2% on your CD for a year, your gain is zero because your dollars lost 2% within a 12-month period. And that's what the Federal Reserve does. So, so many people don't realize there's all these factors that are arrayed against them trying to get ahead financially and trying to get to a point where, you know, you want to be financially independent. You think of someday, we dream and hope of someday, but then the day-to-day grind is, well, maybe next paycheck I'll have some left over. Maybe, maybe I'll have some left over after I pay this bill that popped up. And the reality is, it's not that Americans aren't hardworking. It's that the system is designed to keep them in debt. And the only way to get out of debt is you have to change the cycle of interest payments and get out of unsecured debt. And it's the only way. That's what the short-term retirement was. When you talk about people breaking even in the program, yeah, the guy that's 25 years old, you know, I, I say this in seminars all the time, and I think you can appreciate this. I'll say, okay, everybody, you're here today at your whatever your age is. My age at the time of this recording is 44. What would it be like if five years ago, we were doing this seminar. I'm going to teach you how to pay off houses in five years. And today we're, we're having a seminar where we're all back together again celebrating that we all have five paid off houses. Would your life be better or worse? 
100% of people raise their hands. They're like, it would be so much better. I could think about leaving my job. I would have all my debt paid off knowing that I had. I could retire my wife. Exactly, exactly. Debt would cover my wife's salary, you know, whatever. And the reality is, well, they had a chance to do it at age 39, but they didn't have the knowledge or the team, like, for example, by Memphis Now here. And so now they're coming to the seminar, and it's like, look, five years or seven years seems like a long time, but that time's going to come, and would you rather have five paid-off houses? Now, that's what I started doing 10 years ago. I'm on the tail end of my journey. I have many clients in their 60s, and they're just getting started in real estate, and they're getting 30-year loans. And, and, it, and the problem with that is, as you see older clients like that, that they'll they'll put them on the thirty year loans, and I hear so many of them will say, "Well, I'm going to be dead before I get to realize it anyway. It'll just be something I get to leave to my kids." It's it's kind of like I don't know if that's kind of like thanks or if that sh- should be sounds kind of sad. I don't know. Well, you know, I say this: everybody starts at the time where they're ready. You know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. I'm not really talking about myself. I mean, you have a lot of investors who come here and they're mm-hmm. getting started. They've they've thought about real estate and they. You know, it's a specialized skill. It's a very, very industry-specific series of skills and tools that you need to do it properly. Um, and the and the fact that it's not like, uh, you know, if people want to learn how to uh, trade stocks independently on their own platform, like independent brokers or something, you know, you can do that. You can take your courses, you can read your books, and you can open up an E-Trade account or something, and you can make trades. And that's 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 a skill set, you know, learning how to trade, learning how to read charts, technical analysis. But if you want to get into real estate, you have to learn about renovation. You have to learn about buying properties um, properly relative to market values, ideally far below market values. You have to learn about property management. You have to learn about tenant placement, which you and I both know is extremely difficult. Tenant screening, um, maintaining the tenants. What do you do if there's problems? What if the tenant tells you to go F off? You know, I mean... All of these, you know, conflict resolution, conflict management, navigating the legal system. You know, it's hard for people who are working full time and when they get to our ages, you know, who have families and children, it's like it seems like an overwhelming task. That's why a turnkey company can help, a good management company can help. But the reality is, you know, we all start we all start from the very, very beginning, you know, being taught that it's about working hard. And if you just work hard, you just show up to work. You're going to get where you need to go. And in my book, I talk about this. It's like no, nobody cares. Your boss doesn't care that you are giving like the greatest, you're doing the greatest job. And, you know, the guy in the cubicle next to you is not, is doing a me- mediocre job. You know, your boss is worried. Does everyone show up on time? Is he going to keep his job? And the reality is, and Robert Kiyosaki talks about this in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, there's no difference between somebody who's on a salary X and does a great job and the other guy who's on the same salary X and does a really mediocre job. They both pick up the same money on Friday. They both get the same amount of pay and benefits. So you have to start thinking about positioning your assets and playing the game in a way where financially you're able to get ahead and accelerate. And so many people get into what I call the death knell, the death spiral, and this is the death spiral, is that they go... Um, they go, they get their job, you know, they, they get out of school, they have 30 year loans. Um, and then the first thing they do is they go and they buy the biggest house that they can find based on a 30 year loan and they leverage it as much as possible, like with an FHA loan, you know, because they don't even have 20%. They're asking for sellers concessions and all this and, you know, because they don't really have any money. And what it comes down to is 
you know, the minute that they they bought that and they've entered into that cycle where half of their, their take-home pay goes to taxes, various taxes, and then the remaining half, or we'll call it 40%, but it might as well be half, is thrown away on a 30-year loan, which is an interest-only inst- instrument. People say, well, you reduce principal a few dollars. What, for 21 years, you're going to reduce principal for a few dollars? Well, you know, 98% of it is interest that's thrown away. Um, to me, that's what I call the death spiral. It's very hard to get out of that. They can't sell those houses. Any any mild appreciation they encounter over five years because they bought at market would be eaten up as closing costs and transaction fees if they were forced to sell, which means they're basically running and you're throwing it away. And I can show you the math on this. It's all in my book. It's very, very discouraging for people to hear that, but it also should be empowering because it makes, you know, the book makes a case for buying houses a slightly different way and in doing so, having other people pay your bills, pay your mortgage for you, make sure that the money that you work and take home, you keep, you minimize your tax burden, and use it to reduce debt, and then reinvest. It's a lot of information taken. You know, we could Is have it done, too much? No, it was fantastic. We we, no, not at all. We could have done a whole series on uh, just talking about that. Um, I'm going to switch gears here for a second because uh, we're going to start uh, winding this down here in just a little bit. But um, I always like to ask people, what are some, what have been some of the high points throughout the years? Or maybe I could ask it a different way. What has real estate investing done for you? I mean, when you when you think back over the years and, and kind of where you're at now and, and things like that, what's real estate done for you that maybe teaching never could have? Well, the first the first thing um, is that you know I'm I'm an older dad. I guess you know we had uh, our first child um, when I was 37. And, uh, you know, the first thing is knowing that my kids, I'm going to be able to leave an inheritance to my children. That's, that's the first thing. Um, you know, the financial stress and anxiety that I have these days is more about how do I get to, you know, a better place faster. Uh, I've had a lot of high points. You know, first of all, I have a great pool of friends. You, obviously, being, mm-hmm. being one of my closest friends here in Memphis. My wife is my best friend. And... You know, there's so many uh, things. Having the radio show, you know, be number one in Weekend Talk for 10 years was good. Finishing the book and the learning about the publishing industry has been, been really, really good. Um, you know, I've got a few more thoughts. What I'm going to do is can we just take a quick break? Yeah. Okay. All right, so we're back after that quick, short break. Robert, uh, you were continuing with some of the highlights uh, that real estate has provided for you. Yeah, I mean, I think you know one of the one of the really nice things was um, you know we have a son with autism and uh, it's been a it's been a it's been a project and real estate has allowed us to um, you know we had to, we had to have him in a private school for a while and it was very very costly and then you know when we found out that uh, you know Olive Branch Mississippi is you know some of the best public school support for children with who are on the autism spectrum um, you know we were able to buy a house down uh, bought a little farm down in uh, Olive Branch and our son's going to school there he's just thriving and you know when you do it when you do it real estate gives you the freedom and I'll say this I'll say this to you and I think it's important for your listeners to understand you know there's a guy here in town named Jimmy Luke who I respect he's my CPA I think he's your CPA also we've had him on the show before great and you know he said something to me one time um, you know, he's done, he's done very well in real estate. He's done very, very well in accounting and he's been a mentor to me, helped me out of, you know, many situations. And one day I asked him, I said, you know, Jimmy, you've been doing this a long time. You know, what's your advice? 
And he said, you know, people ask me how I got wealthy, Robert, and I tell them $500 at a time. And I thought, well, that, that doesn't make sense. And he goes, when people come and pay the rent, I pay the note, and I put $500 in my pocket from the cash flow or 300 or 200 or whatever it is. He said, that's how I did it. And there's no substitute for hard work. You know, a lot of people think it's all just about flipping houses and making a hundred grand. And you know, you can do that. There's 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 times and places where you can you can flip houses and do that. But you know, we talk about this at my office. It's like, you know, you can't hit a home run every time. You're not baseball players don't hit home runs every time they're at bat. You know, they they strike out a lot or they hit singles, they hit doubles. You know, singles and doubles win games. You know, it's not just grand slam home runs. You might hit a grand slam occasionally, but it's okay to bat for a single. It's okay to bat for a double. Find a deal where you're going to make 10000 instead of a hundred, and then do that a 100 times, and you've made a million dollars. And real estate can provide that for you. When you're transacting in this kind of business, there's, there's really, other than real estate investing, the, the other way to get wealthy, I mean really wealthy, is to take a company public. It's really the only other way. If you if you're talking about making tons of money, I mean a lot of money. You know, real estate, the way that we do it, can give you a very comfortable lifestyle. If if it's done properly, if you're investing for the long term, you know, some people think, well, okay, I'm just going to flip houses my whole life. You know, then I can make, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, and it's like, well, that's fine, but then you're going to give back, you know, half of it in taxes, or you know, twenty five to thirty percent of it in taxes. But the only other way that you can really, really make money, I mean, I'm talking about big money. And I was reading an article on this. I was on a webinar, actually. It's, it's all about taking companies public. You know, Uber is about to go public a week from Friday. Did you know that? I did. Uh, you know, I thought I saw something about that. Yeah, yeah. Uber's, going, Uber's going public on Friday. And people don't understand what that means. Now, the dumb investors, the, the quote-unquote dumb money, as I call it, are all scrambling with their brokers to try to get – um, shares of the Uber IPO because the Uber IPO might, you know, it's supposed to debut at $44 and might go to, you know, $60, $60 you know, in, in day one. And it's like, wow, you've gotten this 15-point bump. That's great, right? I mean, that would be a big return in the equities market. But the real money's already made its money in Uber. Do you know how it's done it? Through investment capital, through angel investing, through people like Peter Thiel who, you know, invested in Facebook. And those types of guys, it's, who, it's kind of like the people who got in before everybody else gets. Yeah, they're, they're, nobody. No, it's like it's like you're investing and you get ten percent of Facebook, and then, you know, he cuts a check to Facebook for five hundred grand, and then you know, um, when Facebook goes public, his five hundred grand is worth ten percent of the company's shares. There's you know eighty six million shares issued, eight point six million shares times. Um, I think uh, Facebook went public at thirty eight dollars a share. Um, you know what's eight point six million times thirty eight? Well, whatever that is. Um, is how much money he makes off a $500,000 investment. And that type of ROI, you know, is is very hard to get in real estate. So it's like when people are thinking about making financial changes and so forth, there's so many different ways to do it. But, you know, real estate investing, and I'm talking about a long-term diversified strategy of acquiring investment property. And then, you know, maybe you do some private lending from your IRA to get higher returns through a self-directed vehicle. And you dabble with that. Maybe you refer some clients that are your friends who – want to emulate the experience of somebody like Kurt's company or my company and you get, you know, a, either a, a some type of referral fee or some type of, you know, discounted, you know, incentive on your next uh, investment property or something, um, you know, something that complies with, you know, SEC and, you know, real estate brokerage guidelines. You know, it's, it's working that way and having a mindset of, you know, every day a little more, a little farther. 
a little, you know, getting a little better, a little stronger, reducing debt a little bit, increasing cash flow. That's that's how I've done it. There's there's been a lot of high points. There's been a lot of low points, you know, peaks and valleys as we call it. But, you know, when I look at what I've done, and I look at, you know, the blessings that I have, you know, hard work, getting educated, be willing to fail forward. And, you know, now that I'm on the, I don't know, you know, I don't want to say on the other side of it because I still sell houses, but I'm interested more now in, in doing things like this, teaching, coaching, writing, and trying to help other people, you know, not have to take 13 to 15 years to figure it out the hard way like I did. Sure. Absolutely. Well, we're kind of, we're kind of wrapping this up here. What would you say, uh, like a final thoughts would be any, any words of wisdom, encouragement, advice for anybody listening who maybe new to real estate investing or considering real estate investing, what, what would your thoughts be for them? Well, first of all, I want to encourage everybody out there. Um, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you think there's been some good information, would you please, please, please buy my book, the short term retirement program. Uh, it's going to be available uh, on Amazon. It's going to be in Target um, and other other uh, physical chains as well as available uh, online. And please give me a great review if you could, if you if you get something out of it, because I really have worked hard on the book. You know, I think I think it, before you start thinking about getting into real estate investing, it really starts with doing a what I call a personal financial statement, and then meditating on it. You know, you need to sit back. You need to do your statement, and you need to look at your net worth. And you know, the first one of the first sentences in my book is "equity's dead, and net worth is dead." Also, and and I do believe that both of those are are true in so, some ways. But you know, looking at net worth as a function of you know what have you done with your life financially for the X years you've been on the earth. Let's say you're 35 years old. Um, you know, you've got eighty-five thousand dollars in student loan debt. You know, you've got a car payment. You've bought all new vehicles for you and your you and your spouse. Um, you know your kids are in private school. Your your paycheck is stretched. You know you you bought your primary residence ten years ago, but you refinanced it two years ago when rates were low. So you reset the thirty year loan clock. You know, and you're adding up your cash on hand and your IRA. And you know, let's just say your net worth is you know negative or close to zero, which would probably be realistic in that scenario. Um, that's that's bad. Right, a negative net worth is bad, and why? Why is it negative? That's the question, you know. And and the answer, these are answers that are not acceptable because I don't make enough money, right? That's not an acceptable answer about why your net worth is negative, because you allow yourself to make that money, you know. If you want to be a fifty thousand dollar year employee, you know that's your expectation, and we discussed that in the book, and you you have to meditate on that and and decide if you want to change it. And you can't change it through get-rich-quick schemes. You can't change it through, um, you know, a, a raise, asking your boss for a raise. A lot of people think a raise is going to solve their problem. And, Curtis, my favorite story about getting a raise is you. You know, huh. your, your boss gave you, what, is it a quarter-an-hour raise or something? It's such a great story because I'll never forget back in the day uh, I got a raise. And my mentality back in my job days when I was younger was if I got a 25-cent raise – that was code for sell your vehicle that you have now, take a loss, but then roll the loss over into the new loan on the new car that you got that was more expensive because that's what 25 cents told me was is to go out and get a new car. And when I would come back to the office and I told my boss that I bought a new car, he was happy because he knew that giving me that 25 cent raise meant that I wasn't going anywhere. 
Exactly. It's like the old baseball managers. It's like I was talking about this yesterday with one of my staff. It's like, you know, why uh, why do your players play so well, Mr. Baseball Manager? Well, when they get their big advance and they come and they understand they're drafted to the Cardinals, um, I take them, I, sh- I, I make sure the real estate agents show them the biggest house that they can pay pay for with their salary, and I make sure they get introduced to the hottest girls. And, you know, they generally buy them a big diamond and get married, and then I make sure that they're always eating out at the best restaurants and you know, at some point when they realize they're totally broke and they have to play well in order to keep their lifestyle, they perform. And it's like, well, that's fine if you want to be a servant to someone else. Um, you know, your quarter an hour raise, assuming 40, 40 hours a week, came out to be about, was it uh, $10 extra a week? Right? I mean, sure. pre, pre-tax. Is that sure. 25 cents times 40 hours? Yeah. Um, now, is it is it 40? Yeah. What's 40 quarters of 25 cents? It's $10, right? Sure. So, anyways, uh, you know, does that justify the new truck, the the, the two or three thousand dollar loss? And and a lot of people think about this with refinancing too. They don't understand the idea of refinancing. It's like, hey, I can refinance and cut my payment fifty dollars, and it's like, okay, great, you, your payment's gonna go down, right? Oh yeah, and they said I can roll my closing costs in, so it costs me nothing. Well, that's that's not actually true. The truth of the matter is, when you refinance and your payment goes down fifty dollars. But it costs you five thousand dollars to do it, okay? It's um, it takes you uh, is it a thousand months? It takes, no, no, it's it's a hundred months, right? A hundred yeah. months. But, no, what's fifty times a hundred? Okay. My math right now is fuzzy right now. I'm sitting here after doing this, yeah, it takes you fifty months, fifty months. Yeah, it's a while. Six to years to recoup that, and that that's just to break even, mm-hmm. okay? And, but the thing is, you've also reset the thirty-year clock. And it's this kind of financial thinking that keeps people in debt. You know, I read this article that's like 76% of Americans don't even have $500 in a discretionary disposable account and have not uh, saved for retirement or have a minimal, minimal investment in retirement. Yeah. And this, you know, it's not about retirement, but what it is about is, is it's about how is it in the greatest country of the world, three quarters of the population is functionally broke. It's because everyone's living at a higher level than where they're actually at income-wise. Well, if you think about the 30-year loan, yeah. it, it, it makes a lot of sense. So, you know, there's there's a lot of financial learning that, that has to be done. You know, I'm a big fan of Dave Ramsey. I think he's done a lot for people's financial literacy. And, you know, that's there's there's a lot of good, good things that can come out of that. The idea of the snowball, what he calls... The debt snowball. The debt snowball, which is to, you know, basically start with your smallest... You know, credit card balance or your, your whatever your smallest balance of Small debt Smallest monthly payment. Yes, and then you just start paying that off, and that way you feel like you, you know you're actually making making tracks. But the reality is, is that it's not really about being wealthy. A lot of people want to think about being wealthy. They look at the Kardashians. They look at, you know, the movie actors and and people living the high life and having money. And it's Tim Ferriss in his book, The Four Hour Work Week, talks about something that's really important. He says, you know, nobody wants to, to, to really be a millionaire. They just want to live like millionaires. They, they don't necessarily want to be a millionaire, whatever that means, mm-hmm. have a million-dollar net worth or whatever. They just, they just generally want to be with the people that they love, spend time with them doing the things that they mutually enjoy together, whether that's traveling, cooking, eating, you know, whatever, partying, uh, fishing. And, you know, he makes the point that it's like if you're smart about it, you know, leveraging, you know, other economic arbitrage in different countries, you know, you can you can live like millionaires for what your basic, you know, day to day salary is, 
and and have these experiences, what he calls these mini vacations. For me, that speaks to the fact that, you know, so many times we're chasing this dream of just a large net worth, a large bank account. And listen, those things are fine. They're great. But it's hard to do when you're trying to save your way there. I, I write about this in the book. You can't save your way to financial freedom. You're never going to be able to do it. Uh, and, and again, it goes back to the perfect example of the guy who gives half of his check to the government and he pledges the other half of his check to a 30-year loan. He doesn't have money to save. Mm-hmm. You know, he's barely making it, assuming that he can stretch his check for groceries, gas, clothing, other things, and so forth. He is in a position where, you know, even if he saves, let's just say say miraculously he saves 10% of his take-home salary a year, which would be amazing, right, compared to people, 76% of working class who don't even have $500 of disposable income. Let's just say he saves 5000 well, in ten years, he's only saved fifty grand. Yeah. In twenty years, he saved a hundred grand. In thirty years, he saved one hundred and fifty. Let's just assume it's in the bank account, right? He's saving and not, not investing it. Okay. Well, now he's, you know, he's in his sixties, and he's got one hundred fifty thousand dollars to last him to the median death age, which is the upper seventies to low eighties for males. And one hundred fifty thousand isn't going to carry you over twenty five, a twenty year retirement. You know, that's, I mean, it's insanity. So, I mean, you're talking about, what, $7,500 a year? Yeah. And so when you do the math and you look at it, ultimately, for the listeners out there that want to be financially free, it it has to become an all-encompassing pursuit, an insatiable desire um, just to become free of your debts, to stop letting your take-home pay the money that you work so hard for just become something that's thrown away every two weeks to the banker's interest algorithms and if you can do that and what this makes sense to you you know read the book hopefully that makes sense to you and at, at that point you can apply the knowledge you can take the techniques that i do because in the book not only do i talk about this stuff but i give very very easily implementable strategies for anyone in any financial situation to immediately stop being forced to pay their mortgage and have someone else pay it for them to immediately, you know, get out of debt, make some tracks and get in out of debt, get a cash infusion. And at the end of the day, Curtis, I mean, you know, you're a success story. You, you, you went from small town, you know, rural, uh, chef to, you know, now you're at the top of your field. You're one of the top investors in Memphis. You know, I'm gonna have to do this one of these days. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to do my own story. One of these days. You want me to interview you? No, you know, the, for the next time I'll have you do it. I'll interview you. I'll do the host. I'll sit. <laughs> I'll sit in that chair, and I'll interview you because you you have an amazing story, and and it, it can be done. All I can say is you got to keep the faith. If you if you love your family, if you love your spouse, you love your kids, and you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, you know, take a look at it. Or I would even say book you know book a meeting. Like if you're listening to this podcast, you're thinking of pulling the trigger, call Kurt. You know, go take Kurt to lunch. Kurt will share information. You do a meetup group, don't you? We do. We do. Uh, you can you can check us out online. Go to meetup.com and find me on there. And uh, and I love lunches, too. Mm, yeah, food's always good. We so. always love it. Curtis, it's been so fantastic to, to be on your show today. I think we've probably gone a little long, but I hope that your listeners don't mind. I hope it's been a, a great source of information, and you've been a fantastic host. Let me ask you this. How we are going to do a plug for your company? What's the name of the company? 
Uh, my company's name is Discount Property Warehouse. What's the website address? We go to discountpropertywarehouse.net. And if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, how can they? Well, you can always email me, robertfeel at gmail.com. And you can uh, call, call me on my cell phone, 901-258-6944. Now, when the book is released, uh, I may actually get to a point where I, I have my cell phone forwarded to my assistant. Um, you know, I'm hoping to get a lot of calls, but at the end of the day, for right now, uh, if you ring that number, you'll get me. Well, listen, that's going to do it for this episode of Investor Talk Radio. Robert, I really appreciate you taking the time to stop in today and let me uh, pick your brain. It's been an honor to be here, Curtis. And as always, I have to give it back to you. By Memphis Now, you guys are doing phenomenal work. Your reviews are excellent. And I can just tell that, uh, you know, with the integrity that you have and your partner, Craig, brings to the table, anybody who buys from By Memphis Now is in excellent hands. That's going to do it for this episode of Investor Talk Radio. Until the next episode, we'll see you then. This show was produced by Kurt Davis and KurtDavisOnline.com. All rights reserved. To reach Kurt Davis, you can find him on the web at www.KurtDavisOnline.com or email him at Kurt at KurtDavisOnline.com. Everything you heard on this show should not be taken as personal or professional advice. You should conduct your own due diligence. Opinions or comments of our guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Kurt Davis or KurtDavisOnline.com. 